Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me as always to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick and James Hunt. We'll be discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news, and then we'll explore one movie or television show in depth during our main discussion. This week we'll be casting our eyes over Zack Snyder's 2009 film, Watchmen. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Sam and James to explain a comics concept that as a movie fan I just don't understand. So guys, this week, anyone who's listened to the minisode will know this already, I've been confused about mutants. How do mutant powers manifest in the X-Men universe? Are they passed on genetically? Do families tend to have the same mutation? How does it work? Okay, obviously mutant powers can occur spontaneously. Uh, That's why they're mutations. Hmm. But it is possible for family members to pass on their mutations to their children and for siblings to have similar powers and even powers that interact. Uh, But it's also possible for mutants to have non-mutant children. There's a famous example in the comics of uh, Sabretooth's child is Graydon Creed, who is a kind of anti-mutant activist, uh, and he is fully human. Okay. Despite being the child of Sabretooth and Mystique. And so when, when you say about siblings sometimes having similar powers or interactive powers so is that is that kind of like um scarlet witch and quicksilver i'm just trying to put this in the context of characters i might know uh well i mean scarlet witch and quicksilver have completely different powers really whereas if you look at okay a good example of that one of magneto's other children is polaris He's- Put it, he's put it about as Magneto, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. I, I was just having to research Polaris's complicated history this week, and she was like, she was first introduced as a character with magnetic powers, and then so they said, oh, she's Magneto's daughter, and then two issues later, uh, they said she wasn't Magneto's daughter, and then she wasn't for 30 years, and then it was retconned so that she is. <laughs> So I think the current status is that she is, and she's got Magneto. Yeah, but on the plus side, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch aren't Magneto's children anymore. Oh, so of course still got they're something. not, are they? Yeah, it's balanced out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, you also get characters like North Star and Aurora, who they're Canadian twins from Alpha Flight and have basically the same power. As a, as a movie fan, um, Havoc and Cyclops would be probably the best example as well. Yeah, like They're yeah. sort of the same type Quite. of power, but manifested slightly differently. Do you also tend to have characters that have no relationship with each other, uh, no family relationship with each other, who have similar powers? Well, Wolverine and Sabretooth. Well, okay, the thing is, Wolverine, uh, Sabretooth was originally supposed to be Wolverine's father. Ah. <laughs> oh, jeez. As introduced, when Chris Claremont created him. I, find, I think I find X-Men comics the most 
intimidating of any <laughs> comics. Like You're not alone. <laughs> That's kind of their appeal. <laughs> yeah. The reason I quite like the Daredevil and I am continuing to read Daredevil is that that world seems pretty contained and specific and some other characters will turn up. But there are so many mutants and so many powers and, it, 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 and so many different titles as well, it seems. Uh, it's very intimidating for me. <laughs> yeah, this has been the problem with the X-Men ever since the 80s. Like, you just have to go with it. You just have to dive in. Well, should we should we take that cue and dive into the news? Because our first news segment this week... <laughs> I know, that was a good segue. Professional. Very good segue. But our first piece of news is X-Men related, because uh, Brian Singer tweeted the, uh, the other day on his Instagram account he put that he would like to welcome our newest mutant, uh, an actress called Lana Condor, newcomer, who is playing Jubilee. And I was saying to you off mic that they are pretty much the cast of Apocalypse is now just a rogue short of the main cast of the animated series, given that we're we're expecting Gambit will show up. What direction do you think the X-Men franchise is taking? Because we also heard this week that Jennifer Lawrence and Nicholas Holt are possibly, this could be their last film if they don't figure out ways to extend their contracts. And you would would have to imagine that the first class cast all probably signed up for three films. So unless some money gets handed around or unless the likes of Michael Fassbender, James McAvoy, Jennifer Lawrence decide they will take supporting roles, they might not be the, you know, cornerstone of this franchise moving forward but they've also got this new young cast they're introducing with characters like Jubilee and young Jean Grey and young Storm and young Cyclops they've also got the older cast still existing in a future timeline and then they've got Wolverine who is exists in both timelines what what do you think Brian Singer and Fox are trying to do with this franchise right now I think they're trying to keep it alive but inexpensive <laughs> That, I, that might be the key, might it? The inexpensive nature. I worry that it's going to turn into a situation where the X-Men films have become like Saved by the Bell, the new class, and um, <laughs> uh, Hugh Jackman is Screech, like the guy who's been in it since the start, <laughs> who's now this older guy hanging around with all the kids a little bit awkwardly. Well, you never know. If they need to recast Wolverine, Dustin Diamond's he's definitely available. <laughs> and he's quite handy with knives. <laughs> The thing about those characters is that in recasting, say, Xavier Magneto once, they've crossed the Rubicon in that sense. Mm. Like, they can recast them as many times as they like now. Like, McAvoy is no more Xavier to me than Patrick Stewart at this point. It's funny, because you would have thought, before First Class, you would think, well, how you can't do Professor X and not have it be Patrick Stewart, because Patrick Stewart is just the, you know... Even before he was ever cast as Professor X, he was Professor X. (laughs) But by going and doing the younger Charles they found a way to do Professor X without it having to be Patrick Stewart. And when you've lifted that restriction, and the same goes with Ian McKellen as Magneto as well, although I think you'd find it a lot more difficult to replace Fassbender as Magneto. I think you'd have to steer clear of Magneto completely if he wasn't going to come back. I mean, that wouldn't be a bad thing either. And you look at the possibilities available to this franchise. So Apocalypse and presumably Gambit, given that it looks like Channing Tatum will probably show up in Apocalypse. Both of those movies are going to be 80s set. Deadpool looks like it's going to be a total lore unto itself. And the rumours were that Patrick Stewart would be showing up in James Mangold's next Wolverine film, which suggests that that Wolverine film is set kind of in the present day, but that could be before Wolverine goes back in time. It could be after he goes back in time. They've got a lot of avenues open to them, haven't they? It's much the same as the X-Men comics in that respect. (laughs) Like, there are alternate futures, alternate pasts, you know. Different universes, different versions of characters. You can do whatever. So what you're like. saying is that within within the next couple of years, the X Men movies are going to be as intimidating as the comics are. Yes. <laughs> 
That is my hope. <laughs> the end of um, Days of Future Past just basically tore up the rule book, and they can go and do things that contradict all of the original three films if they yeah, want to. Yeah, I mean, to. They, they could bring Rogue in earlier if they wanted to. I guess all you have to say is that, you know, a butterfly flapped its wings and Rogue was born ten years earlier. Mm-hmm. But yeah, very interesting, very interesting to see where the X-Men franchise goes from here. In fact, let's let's stay kind of on that theme, but also uh, spread it a bit wider. So we got our first look at three comic book characters this week. One of them, to keep the X-Men link uh, going was Deadpool. So we saw Deadpool recreating the famous Burt Reynolds on a bearskin rug pose, um, but fully in his costume. <laughs> Via an Instagram post from a foreign land, we got our first look at The Thing uh, in his full Rocky glory for uh, Fantastic Four. And then Entertainment Weekly gave us our look at Lex Luthor's face. Uh, so what what did we think of those three characters, um, and what do you think they tell us about potentially the tones of those movies? Um, well, I mean, you know, given we've already established how little interest we tend to have in Deadpool, but I have to say, you know, if, if I wanted to see a faithful representation of Deadpool's costume, that's pretty much what they've done. Yeah, so, yeah. it looks like the comics. It really seems like a statement of intent. <laughs> I'd go so far as to say that that interpretation of Deadpool is probably one of the closest versions of any costume they've done, like Fox specifically. Like, that, that is Marvel Studios' levels of accuracy. And in fact, there was a quote from Ryan Reynolds going, around recently saying that basically they wanted to make the diehard fans happy they didn't want to have anything in the movie that would that would like the diehard fans would look at and say no that's wrong what about the others what about the thing i just if you're gonna do the thing and not give him those eyebrows it's kind of like doing <laughs> Superman and not putting an S on his chest. You, you see, know, you see, for me, that never it never even occurred to me. I just thought, oh, he looks craggy. Well, he looks craggy, but <laughs> he looks wrong. It's weird. I mean, I'm not even a big Fantastic Four fan, but the thing has got a certain look about him, and he doesn't have that look. I was, I'll be honest, it, it wasn't a problem for me. The point about the thing is, he's like he's supposed to be a tragic character, mm. and giving him that sort of those eyes and that expression, like that, gives him the sort of inherent relatability. Like you can you can understand his predicament just from looking at his face. Yeah, and this version of the thing just looks like a monster. He, he, it, it does look deeply uncomfortable, though. I do feel sorry for the guy that is in that body. I feel sorry for <laughs> Jamie Bell. I guess the thing is the, the the thing the thing with the thing sorry is that in the kind of comics when he's transformed because he's already this kind of big lug type guy when he's transformed into the thing he essentially is the same kind of build and face and look but just covered in orange rock whereas in this you know he's Jamie Bell suddenly becoming this massive creature of rock so it just there doesn't seem to be as much of a of a line between Ben Grimm and the thing as that like you know the thing is still recognizably Ben Grimm and that's part of the point of the character the last thing looked like Chickless. Yeah, and you know I don't like those films, but I think I think Chickless as the thing was dead on. But then again, Michael yeah. Chickless does kind of look like he's constructed <laughs> of rock to begin with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, and so what about what about Lex Luthor, Seb? He's he's most definitely bald, but he has retained his eyebrows, which means there's no kind of like alopecia or anything. <laughs> Maybe it's a style choice. I don't know. Um, well, Lex, well, Lex Luthor always has his eyebrows. Well, yeah, I know, bald. but you don't know how they want to establish it because he's quite young <laughs> for like complete hair loss. Yeah, but so was um, uh, Michael Rosenberg <laughs> and. Uh, um, well, it's Lex Luthor and he's bald and he looks like Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> um, uh, let's move on to uh, Preacher now. Um, and so um, I, m- I managed to mention a couple of these 
uh, piece of casting news on the mini-sode. Ruth Negger has been cast as Tulip and Ian Coletti has been cast as Arseface. But Seb, do you want to tell us about the extra piece of casting that you are super, super excited about? So Joe Gilgan is playing Cassidy and if you'd have asked me who should play Cassidy I don't think I would have had a good answer for you. I think 10 years or more ago people were saying things like Tim Roth. Now I haven't really watched Misfits but I have seen bits of it with him in and I've seen him pop up in other things but it is one of those bits of casting that as soon as someone says it and shows you a picture of that guy it's bloody hell that is absolutely perfect casting for Cassidy Uh, so Cassidy is the kind of the third main character in Preacher along with Jesse Custer the lead character and Tulip uh, Ruth Negger's character Mm. and uh, he is um, an immortal Irish vampire who's about 100 years old and why I think it will work is that Cassidy is a character who on the one hand is this kind of tough, hard-drinking party animal vampire, life and soul of the party, and very strong and hard because he's a vampire, but also underneath is a frightened little boy and is a kind of weasel as well, and particularly when you learn more about his background and you see him before he became a vampire and that kind of thing just physically there seems to be something about Gilgan that just is absolutely spot on for getting both those sides of the character across and I think he'll have the right level of intensity and weirdness to pull it off. Is he a bad guy? Well, no, he's a... Let's say, in the early part of it, he's one of the lead characters, so he's he's on the side of the good guys. Mm. It's one of those where the more you find out about him, the less you like him. But he's still... You could call him one of the heroes of the story, but I'd say anti-hero, really. I've seen a lot of the stuff that Joe Gilgan has done, and that seems kind of perfect for me. Mm. Uh, in This Is England, he's kind of... You meet him hanging around under a underpass and... <laughs> You know, which sounds like the, something Cassidy would do befriending this little kid and you go no, I'm not so far and you grow to love him over the course of the misfits he has that split personality so he's playing both sides of that and he's kind of like you like the guy despite him being a complete and utter scumbag yeah, of a pretty character much. morally you, you, you like him but you never know if you can trust mm. him but no, I mean, th- th- that piece of casting with Cassidy, just that nails it. And that is such an important piece of casting to get right. Because if you don't have Cassidy right, a lot will fall down. OK, we'll draw our comic book movie news segment to a close there. Um, and we'll move on to our main spoiler-filled discussion of Watchmen. But before we dive in, let's listen to a clip from the movie. Rorschach's Journal, October 12th, 1985. Dog carcass in alley this morning. Dire tread on Burr's stomach. This city's afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains finally scab over, all of Ermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up around their waists, and all the whores and politicians will look up and shout. Save us. And I'll whisper, no. Okay, so that was a clip from Zack Snyder's Watchmen. And before we dive in, I mean, this is going to be slightly different to the conversations we've had before, because for the first time, we're discussing a movie that I have actually read the source material as well. So I thought it would be interesting if we just begin by talking about what our individual relationships are with the source. Like, when did you guys first read Watchmen and what was it meant to you? 
I grew up reading comics because my dad read comics. So my mm. dad bought Watchmen when it originally came out. And I definitely remember when I was too young to read or understand it, like finding the copy and flicking through it and, you know, not really understanding it. So there were kind of specific panels and images that then when I did come to read it, you know, I remembered kind of jumping out at me. I had a similar thing with Dark Knight Returns and some of Sandman, I think, as well. But I probably first read it properly, like in my early to mid-teens probably and I've still got the same original 1987 battered edition that's held together by sellotape and I couldn't tell you how many times I've read it I mean like in the multiple tens of times or probably more than that yeah I'm I'm definitely one of these people who I think that all of the reputation and status that Watchmen has is completely deserved. James, what about you? I first read it when I was at university in, it would have been 2002. Uh, so I'd been reading comics for maybe about, uh, American superhero comics for maybe eight or nine years by that point. And I'm pretty sure it would have been the first non-Marvel comics that I like actively branched out into and purely because of its reputation. Possibly the first Alan Moore I read as well, although I might have read Leave Extraordinary Gentleman first. And are you like Seb? Have you have you read it over and over again or Well that's the thing. Like it's so such a huge piece of work and I've always got so many other comics to read that I've only read it maybe three or four times, possibly <laughs> since that initial one and it's not you know, quite a lot. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, one of those was when I got the Absolute Edition. So, I mean, to spend 80 quid on it is probably a fair way of saying how what sort of esteem I hold it in, <laughs> personally. I must have read it about a year or two before the movie came out, knowing that the movie was being made and knowing that it was uh, deemed to be such an important comic. And actually, I think I was still super into Lost at the time, and there was a <laughs> quote from Damon Lindelof on the cover, so I was like, well, it must be good. Um, I'm not sure what the ending's going to be like, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, so I read it then and kind of really liked it, but I had nothing to compare it to and then watched the movie. Um, and I've kind of flicked through it since, and I've always meant to go back and reread it with a bit more context. And I think it is, uh, it is a piece of work that rewards multiple readings and, uh, rewards maybe being older than 17, 18 when you read it. So you can... You, can, oh, you can get a little bit more from it. But to be honest, the first time that I've actually read it cover to cover again was this week, preparing for the podcast. So I watched the movie, I reread the graphic novel, and after each issue, watched the corresponding segment of the movie. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so, that, so that's my relationship to it. And I guess then what I want to ask you is, why do you think it is so important to the medium? And what did it change in the world of comic books? Alan Moore's comics, like 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 a kind of you know exalted few people who are who are the best at writing comics. It's not just that they write great stories and great character things, although obviously that is a part of it. It's that they write great comics specifically. Like you know, the the best writers and artists are the best writers and artists because of the way that they understand the form and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why Moore has such a fractured relationship with the screen is that the comics that he's written he sees as comics solely. And you know, he's not Mark Miller. He doesn't have an interest in creating ideas that will go on to become films. Yeah, if I can just throw a quote at you, uh, frankly, I didn't think it was filmable. That was Alan Moore, Moore talking about Watchmen. Yeah. 
And he's right. It's not. <laughs> I was about to say, like, the thing I would say about Moore is it's really hard to overstate the kind of influence that his work has had on, on comics as a form. Like, pretty much any graphic novel you pick up today in some way owes its, its existence. Like, just technically speaking to, to what Alan Moore did in the 80s. Like, he wasn't the only person doing that, but you can, you know, if you go and read comics from the 60s and 70s and then compare them to the ones, like, to Watchmen and what came after Watchmen, like, the, the difference is so marked and it's mostly because of him. And I read a quote from Alan Moore saying that he wasn't thrilled by the changes that the comics industry made based on Watchmen like he felt that they learned the wrong lessons so the lesson people took from Watchmen is that people wanted their comics to be more realistic and sort of and dark and dark yeah whereas the the lesson it was telling was that the story stories needed to be more and better layered for the like specifically for the medium and that you could you could get more out of the medium than comics were doing. I mean, Watch- Watchmen didn't just come as a bolt from the blue, is an important thing to understand. Alan Moore had been writing comics for American companies prior to Watchmen. Watchmen was kind of the culmination of a build-up throughout the early 80s, and Alan Moore wasn't the only one doing that kind of thing. It's just that Watchmen is the one that really made everyone sit up and take notice, and was also just the best expression of, of that approach. It is know. worth pointing out that Watchmen is... Uh, the best-selling graphic novel of all time. The thing that sums up its sales is the unpleasant rights issues that arose as a result of it, which is that when it was printed, comics did not stay in print the way that books tend to. So something like Watchmen, the reasonable expectation was it would get printed as its 12 monthly issues, it would get collected in a collected edition that, if it sold well enough, might get a couple of printings, and then it would go out of print. And the contract for Watchmen stipulated that when it went out of print, the rights would revert to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. We are now nearly 30 years later, and those rights have not reverted because Watchmen has never gone out of print. I want to kind of move us towards actually discussing the film now, but I thought it was important <laughs> that we had that context before we went in. And if if I can just start by giving you a potted history of the arduous journey that Watchmen had to the screen. Almost immediately after it was published, it was optioned by Fox. And they wanted Alan Moore to write the screenplay. He politely declined. Um, <laughs> so, so they brought in Sam Hamm, who wrote a draft which changed an awful lot and famously changed the ending. Um, And in this ending, he had Ozymandias time-travelling back to just before Dr. Manhattan was created and killing him, therefore changing the timeline. Uh, Inevitably, that script was too expensive for Fox, so the project went to Universal, and they attached uh, producer Joel Silver and Terry Gilliam to the project. Gilliam had the script rewritten, which again, I think, from when it's been seen by fans, fans weren't delighted with what happened there. And basically, again that project collapsed because it was too expensive Um, although I think Gilliam was very keen to make it and put his stamp on it for it to be kind of a Terry Gilliam film that happened to be based on an Alamore property. Anyway, so it kind of it kind of floundered then until 2001, at which point Darren Aronofsky wanted to make it, but he said he didn't think it would be possible to do the Cold War stuff anymore and that we just didn't live in that world anymore. Then 9-11 happened, and suddenly the, a huge amount of interest in this property again. They brought an X-Men writer, David Hayter, to write a draft. Uh, this producer, Lawrence Gordon, who still had the rights then. He finally whittled down his draft to 129-page third draft, which Alan Moore himself actually said was as close as you would get to his graphic novel in script form. Um, And they actually filmed test footage of that with Ian Glenn playing the Night Owl role. But again, too expensive. Universal put it in turnaround. It went to Revolution Studios. They couldn't get it working. 
And then Darren Aronofsky uh, was brought back in to work from David Hayter's script in 2004 when The Fountain collapsed. But then Hugh Jackman came in to do The Fountain. So The Fountain (laughs) happened again and Aronofsky went off. Then Paul Greengrass was hired. And this is the project that really looked like it was going to happen. It went into pre-production and Greengrass introduced the idea of having a title sequence with an alternate history at the start. Didn't know that that was Greengrass's idea. (laughs) It was certainly in the version that Greengrass was prepping. That was there. So that eventually fell apart because Paramount changed bosses and the project got put in turnaround. And then finally in 2005, the project gets taken to Warner Brothers. And this is while 300 is in post-production. Warner Brothers are convinced they have a massive hit on their hands. They attach Zack Snyder and they get Alex Say to rewrite or do it like a soft rewrite of David Hayter's script, which has been kind of knocking around since 2001. And that is eventually the script that Snyder works from. And then we get Watchmen. We get the 2009 version of Watchmen, Zack Snyder directed, based on that script. Do you guys like it? <laughs> That's the question, because I I have such a, like a... I feel like I personally have such a strange relationship with the film. And I'm curious, do you, do you like it? Do you actively dislike it what's what's your thoughts do you know what i think would have been better than the Zack snyder version having heard that entire history go on literally anything <laughs> have you not read the sam ham script james i've not read the script but oh no it's worse it's fair worse. enough uh, uh james so james you hadn't actually seen the film until this week you'd be no i didn't watch it when it came out because i had zero interest in seeing it and i watched it because we were covering it on the podcast and now i just want to call up Zack snyder and ask if there's any way i can recover the two and a half hours of my life i spent watching it seb what's so what, what are your thoughts are you as are you as violently against it as james <laughs> No, I, I mean, I have a difficult relationship with Zack Snyder generally, and one day we will discuss Man of Steel, and that will be an unpleasant day. But I, I, I think I land in similar territory to you in that I've watched this a few times now because I still haven't got a handle on whether I like it or not, but I think it's a fascinating film. And I think there are there are bits that I really, really like. And then there are other bits that I think are shockingly dreadful. I don't think there are many bits that I just go, yeah, that's all right, that bit. I, th- I think the film is either being brilliant or terrible. I think more of it is is bad than good, but I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of good stuff almost in spite of itself because I feel like most of the decisions that it makes are bad decisions, but there are things about it that if you're going to get a film of Watchmen... I think the thing is is that the film makes it clear that it's a bad idea to do a film of Watchmen, but if you're going to do it, you still get some good out of yeah. it. Yeah. You see, I watched this film and I kind of, like... I don't have any violent reaction against it. And like I say, so I I really like the graphic novel. I think it is a phenomenally deep, textured, rich piece of fiction. And uh, probably, and and I would compare this to something like Citizen Kane or Casablanca. Like, you wouldn't want to read the novelisation of Citizen Kane. (laughs) It's in its perfect medium to begin with. And I think there is no question that Watchmen is in its perfect medium because there are things in that story that you couldn't possibly do elsewhere. Having said Mm -hmm, that, like in terms of it it making its transition to screen, I understand why why some people rate the film really highly because it it tries to stay 
as true as it can to Alan Moore's story within the limitations of the cinema medium. But when I'm watching it, I kind of, I don't enjoy it. I don't dislike it. I just kind of, I just kind of feel like it, it, it unfolds in front of me. And there, there's, there's certainly no emotional, I, I don't get emotionally involved in the film. It's because it's got no depth whatsoever. The film has got absolutely no depth. And this is the thing. And the stuff that is enjoyable about the film is when they get some of the surface stuff right. But the problem is, is that the whole film is an incredibly surface reading of Watchmen. You never get the sense that anyone involved in making the film actually knows why the comic is good. On that exact point, the bit where um, Daniel and Laurie put their costumes back on and go out for the first time, the beat in the film is that this is a triumphant moment, whereas in the comics, it's a sort of hitting rock bottom moment of relapse. It's an addict relapsing, exactly, Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't think that's the case across the whole film, though. I, I, I do think he has a grasp on what makes Watchmen good. But like I said, I, there's so much that he just can't put in the movie. So to certainly do the plot justice, which I think, like, the, the surface-level plot justice and make it all make sense. Certainly what I noticed when I was going through the graphic novel and going to the film and seeing kind of what made it from the page to the screen, what seemed to always make it was stuff that had to be there in terms of plot, And what you kind of lost a lot of the time was character depth. And so I think that the film Mm. often gets a decent idea of its characters, but it loses... Or it's just not able to find the time to fully flesh them out and give them proper motivations and make you really understand the, the... the more delicate nuances of those characters that the that the graphic novel is able to. And I do think it's fair on this occasion to really explicitly compare it to the graphic novel and, you know, what works and what doesn't work and what it changes and what it doesn't achieve that the graphic novel does because Snyder is so clearly trying to put the graphic novel as perfectly as he can on the screen. But the problem is, is that what he's done is he's taken the plot and the look of it and what happens and put that on the screen and made it look as much like the comic as he can. But those aren't the things that make it good. The plot is not what makes Watchmen good because it's not that good a plot. You know, Alan Moore discovered (laughs) two-thirds of the way through writing Watchmen, someone pointed out to him that he had used the plot of an old episode of The Outer Limits that he'd never even heard of. The, The plot of Watchmen is the plot of a hokey... 1950s sci-fi TV show it's not what makes it good the fact that it's a dark take on superheroes is not what makes it good the fact that it's violent is not what makes it good what makes it good is that it is an astonishing piece of storytelling within its own form when you were talking through the history of the other versions and the idea that Terry Gilliam would have wanted to make a film that was a Terry Gilliam film that happened to be based on Watchmen that would probably be a better Watchmen because it would be a better piece of filmmaking, even if it wasn't just a straight adaptation of the comic. And the other thing is, I think the one point at which the film gets even remotely close to why the book is any good is the opening credit sequence, which is the bit where it does in film language what the comic does in comics language. And it tells a part of the story in a way that only a film could tell it. And it does it beautifully and brilliantly, that opening sequence is everything that an adaptation of Watchmen should be because you've gone, you've picked apart, you've, you've, you've dismantled the watch and then you've put it back together again and you've understood how it works. But then the rest of the film just tries to replicate the comic and doesn't succeed. I don't know what you think of it, James, because I mean, it's one of those things that I take for granted that everyone likes about Watchmen because I don't know your feelings on the film. <laughs> no, that, yeah, that sequence was 
for me, that was the high point of the film. As you were saying, like, so, so much of what makes Watchmen good is the intertext. And Zack Snyder just lops out giant chunks of it to make it into a movie. And it's like, if you're going to film it in that way, you just have to do everything. And like, that, that would have made it six hours long and that would have been unbearable. Well, should we, should we talk specifically then about that opening sequence and kind of about the first 15 minutes as a whole? Because it is interesting that in the director's cut version, three hours and six minute long movie, which is, you know, notorious for being so slavish to its source material, that first 15 minutes is pretty much all Snyder. So he takes four or five panels of the comedian mm. getting beaten and murdered and turns that into a five minute long action sequence. And then he adds... Um, you know, seven or eight more minutes of those titles. Oh, and he adds the other stuff about kind of the doomsday machine on the TV that the comedian's watching as well. And so he he kind of carves this section of the film aside for himself, essentially, to go, like, here is this world that I'm putting you into. And he takes a lot of stuff from the kind of the in-between chapters of the graphic novel and little details from from here there and everywhere in the story that might not fit in later and kind of puts them in here in a very in a very interesting way that opening title sequence for all of the old for all of the kind mm. of minutemen characters in that segment it's all still photographs yeah. being brought to life so everyone is being photographed there is a flash and we see the picture and I thought there was a very interesting way to acknowledge that you were taking this graphic novel, which is all still panels, and trying to bring movement and life to them. Yeah, it's clever. There's depth to that. It's like there's a reason behind why they do what they do in that sequence. It's like it's well thought out. It's, and that's why it's so baffling that the rest of the film is just so rote. As much as I like that opening title sequence, is it not fair to say that most of that is filling in plot details and filling in, you know, kind of the timeline of Watchmen without... Yeah, but it's but it's good storytelling. It's doing what the book does in all those in-between chapters. and it, But it's, it's economic film storytelling. That's true, yeah. Like, the thing about Zack Snyder is that he's a fantastic cinem- cinematographer and an awful director. So that sequence plays entirely to all of his strength in that, you know, you don't really have to take any storytelling decisions or write any dialogue or direct actors to do much more than pose. That's what he's good at, and that comes across. It it really effectively shows you how the world is different. Rather than just dropping you into the alternate 1985, by taking these you know historical events and points and to be honest it's quite on the nose a lot of what it does but it (laughs) but it at least gives you a sense of since the introduction of the masked superhero how how that introduction changes a world and makes it deviate and how Dr. Manhattan changes it again a lot of it's obvious but it's it's striking I think the point is it means that you arrive at the start of Watchmen with a really strong sense of this world and where it is even if you don't specifically know who a lot of the characters are and there's little things like you know the only time that Captain Metropolis shows up in the film is in the title sequence yeah and you've got I mean it's almost done a little bit too obviously but um, at the Sally's retirement party one that's, you know, showing the disintegration the, of the, the team. The Last Supper. Yeah, um, and him and Hooded Justice looking at each other, like, you know, sort of flirting with each other kind of thing. Something mm-hmm. that's a bit of a kind of bubbling subplot in in the book. I'm going to use this as a platform now to defend Zack Snyder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, certainly as a visual storyteller, I think Snyder absolutely knows what he's doing. And he has a very definite cinematic style. I mean, there are some sequences in this movie. If you just showed Dan Dryberg's dream, where it's him and Laurie on Mars with the nuclear explosion in the background and peeling off their skin for the costumes underneath, that is a beautiful kind of 30 seconds of cinema that I'm not sure he could have executed 
wanted any better than that. Can I just register my violent disagreement with that? I thought it was film student levels of obvious. <laughs> but he, t- he, I mean, he literally just takes the panels and brings them to life and gives them a cinematic style and scope that looks good, I think. But I, I, I don't think he puts his identity on, in, on enough of those bits. But it's th- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Things like the the funeral scene as well. It's like when it's when when you're just using the comic as a storyboard. By definition, you're not putting your own visual stamp on it. And sometimes I wish he'd chosen different angles that didn't make it look quite so much like the comic. Yeah, I think there are, there are occasions. But I mean, s- some of the panels he recreates, and you're like, oh, I totally know why you wanted that panel on the screen because that looked great in the in the graphic novel and it looks great here the thing i was gonna say and this is you're gonna you're gonna again violently disagree and laugh at me but i think at times <laughs> Zack snyder is too subtle a filmmaker yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Jesus um, Christ! and i say this in a way that sucker punch is not a movie that i like uh in any way and when i watched it i kind of violently hated it and then you come away and you kind of look a little bit deeper at that film and there is stuff that is trying to say that i think gets lost beneath the the kind of surface level stuff of the film that Snyder beds in there but doesn't make it obvious enough for audiences and I think there might this is a conversation for another day but I think there might be a case of that in Man of Steel uh, certainly not in 300 300 is is right there but listening to his commentary on Watchmen he, he's constantly talking about 
and and the production design of this film, I think, is amazing. It, I, I can't I can't fault most of the production design. It's it's really yeah. really. That's why that that book of all the photographs is one of the best things about it. There are things in the backgrounds of scenes that Snyder will say, "Oh, that's there," and that kind of hints at this thing. You know, this this theme in the plot, and this hits hints at that thing, and that refers back to that. And you go. I just, I'm never going to notice that stuff watching this film without you slowing it down and telling me that it's there. And certainly, if I hadn't read the graphic novel, that would mean nothing to me in the in the context of this film on its own. And that's what I kind of mean by I think he's a little bit too subtle in that I think he beds things in his films that just audiences never have a chance to get to. And he sometimes doesn't delve into them enough. And I think that becomes a problem when you're adapting something like Watchmen. Like, the thing about Watchmen is more is on record as saying that one of the points about Watchmen is that it's so dense that you, you know, you read it slowly, you refer back to things, like, you don't necessarily read it in a linear fashion. No, I I, I found myself getting to the end of a page and going back and looking at a panel and looking, what's that poster in the background there? Yeah, exactly. And, like, when, when Snyder adapted it, he tried to replicate everything that was in the panel. Yeah. But without the benefit of being able to stop and pause and take it all in. So there's just so much stuff which is flying by. It just might as well not be there. I respect Snyder for putting that in there. And I guess, I mean, I, I threw this question out on Twitter and there was a couple of people that were saying they loved it and have enjoyed it more on rewatches. People that were a little bit cold on it the first time but have kind of gone back and watched it and found more to enjoy about it. But I mean, I personally wouldn't have revisited the film given its length and given that <laughs> you know, given that the graphic novel exists. If I if I'm gonna go back to one of the two, I'd go back to the graphic novel. So I think maybe the biggest difference that you could uh, level at the film and the gra- and the graphic novel is that Alan Moore is doing something with the comic book format and is through the course of his story trying to explore what you can do in that yeah. format. Whereas Snyder is taking stuff mm-hmm. that works in that format and doesn't necessarily work yeah. in film, but is doing that's it. That's anyway. exactly it. That's, that's... And, I, and I think for the reason for the reason that he wants it to be so yeah, fake. But he but he should have concentrated more on doing more stuff like that opening sequence, on trying to take the lessons of the comic and apply them to a film. Yeah, that's the thing. Like the the opening sequence, like in the comics, to learn about the alternate history, you can pick up on the small details that you wouldn't be able to see in the in a film. And that opening sequence says, "Well, okay, you're not going to be able to see a headline that appears in the corner of a frame for half a second. So how do we, you know, get across mm. the same information, uh, you know, as a film? And that's why that opening sequence works, and why the rest of it doesn't. That opening sequence understands the difference between a comic and a film, like like you said. Yeah. And my biggest problem with the rest of the film is that it doesn't understand the difference. And this is why there are a lot of instances when it just directly takes something from the comic and it's something that in the comic works and in the film, even if you do it exactly the same, doesn't work. You were talking about pieces of dialogue, weren't you? There are there are sometimes Laurie shouts at um, Ozymandias and says, you're such an asshole. Yeah. It, it just, it, it doesn't ring true in that moment of the film for the for the film version of the character or the scene. Yeah, and that, but that, but that line is directly from the comic. And like, Rorschach's narration, the fact that they keep in the <sighs> line about screaming like an abattoir full of retarded children, and it's like, that's a bad line, but it works in the comic because you see it written down by Rorschach and the point is that Rorschach is a little bit deranged and it's just generally a, a, a bad line but in the film it's delivered with sincerity and there's but there, even even aside from Rorsch, you know being Rorschach lines where he's meant to be completely mental there are just lines of dialogue that don't 
come across badly when they're written on the page that do come across badly when someone says them out loud and I remember on a few instances watching this a, a line of dialogue would come up and I'd think god that's a cheesy line of dialogue that they've thrown in there and then I'd remember <laughs> or I'd look back and I'd see that it was taken from the comic well the the cadence of written language isn't the same as, as spoken language so it's just the two forms aren't interchangeable and Zack Snyder is treating them as though they are but at, this, but at the same time, for every one of those lines that really doesn't work, there are lines that they take from the graphic novel that work perfectly. It's just in terms of an adaptation, you kind of wish that there had been a little bit more picking and choosing rather than... Mm. I think which I, I think the approach was, let's try and put as much of this on the screen as we possibly can. Which is also why I don't understand why they get to the single most famous line in the comic. Possibly the single most famous line of dialogue in comic book history, and they rewrite it. So instead of saying, I did it 35 minutes ago, he says, I triggered it 35 minutes ago. Completely changes the cadence of the line. I mean, I know it's only a word. It's a ridiculous thing to get hung up on. But it's that is the famous line. That didn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in, they also changed that line to reflect. He says, I'm not a comic book villain instead of like, I don't I'm not mind a serial. I, I like that. I think that's a nice yeah, little tweet. Again, it's a bit on the nose, but I don't mind <laughs> it. But it's the... Yeah, that's more of Zack Snyder's trademark subtlety. <laughs> Um, I'm not but the other thing, down, um, the other thing in terms of the difference between the two mediums, I think, is best shown by the violence. One of my biggest problems with the film is that it seems to enjoy the violence too yeah. much. I think there are too many scenes that go on for too long in terms of there just being a lot of blood splattering and bones breaking and stuff like the bit where the guy's arms get cut off in the prison bars is just needlessly unpleasant. Before you d- dive into that and specific examples, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to again do the slight defence of Zack Snyder in that. The one thing that you do need to add to this film when you are making it into a big budget blockbuster that is essentially a studio tentpole, you need to add action. So I absolutely understand why the comedian being killed at the start turns into a longer action scene. And I, oh, that's and I absolutely I understand scene, when uh, Dan and Laurie go to save the people from the burning building that you want to put Silk Spectre inside the burning building and that you want a fireball and that kind of stuff. You want, yeah, you want to that. add action. And I'm completely fine with Zack Snyder adding action scenes. I think that was something that was completely necessary for the adaptation. But now feel free to slag off the violence because... <laughs> can I, well, can I just jump yeah, in? Go on. It is one thing to add action... It's another to violate the reality of the premise by having non-superpowered characters jump through floors of buildings. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's something that I would just. It I would argue work. that Zack Snyder is making a movie that has a number of superheroes in. I don't. I, I I think the the physics of his world and the characters that he has in the Crime Busters they are they are almost to a man superheroes. They all have superpowers in terms of strength and agility. They're not. They're not ordinary. Oh yeah, they do. But like as depicted, they do. But they but don't in the graphic again, novel. I think that's something that Snyder well, has it, changed. Like, I just think it, it's pandering to say, oh, they need to be like that. Like, I don't think they need to be you like know, that. He's underestimating the audience, if anything. I think when you are making a studio movie, they almost do need to be like that. If you want the budget that he got to make a three-hour movie of Watchmen, I kind of, I kind of think, think they do. I just think, having seen his previous films, he has a pornographic love of violence. Well, the, the violence is another thing, and the violence is something that I'm going to agree with you on. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, so 
something I think is quite an interesting point. So I'm going to bring up um, our learned friend, Kieran Gillen, who recently, uh, you'll probably want to talk about this a bit more a bit later, Joe, because I know you watched it as well, but he recently did a lecture about Watchmen, the comic that was filmed at Gosh Comics, and you can watch it on the internet, and it's very, very interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll put a link in the post because I would recommend everyone watch it. It's excellent. But then somebody asked him on Tumblr what he thinks of the movie, and actually he lands in a very similar position to you and I, Joe, in that he thinks it's interesting while very flawed and he's not sure if he actually likes it. But there's a point that he brings up where he says, I'll I'll quote him directly, he says, however, in terms of where they choose to make things stylistic, that also breaks Watchmen. The example I always use is Rorschach. In the comic, he's he's scary as he's the one who goes further than everyone else. The finger break I talk about, and that's something he talks about in the lecture, it's when it's not really in the film, he does the thing with the glass, but... Uh, Well, the the thing with the glass is from the comic as well, but the finger break is in the graphic novel is in the very first issue, Rorschach talks to someone and breaks their thing their fingers and that is one of the few things from the first issue that is not put onto the screen yeah so so what so the point that kieran makes about rorschach with that is that you know that is that's the moment at which watchman breaks with conventional how superheroes and vigilantes would act because this guy is torturing someone mm. essentially but what he says about the film is uh, the problem is that Rorschach breaks fingers is entirely undermined by the fight scene with Laurie and Dan where we show acts of incredible bone-breaking action. It looks awesome, of course, but it makes all the cast into Rorschach. Now, I agree with that point, but what I find really interesting is if you look at that scene and you look at the things that happen in that scene that are shown in gory close-up with the guy's arm poking through and all the blood splattering and the, leg and breaking, the guy being stabbed in the, the eye stabbing, well I think it's in the neck isn't it he gets stabbed in the, the neck well there's one stabbing in the neck but there's a bit I think where, where Dan gets a guy in the eyes as well right. and the point is, is that there are three specific moments all of which are actually on the comics page like the film is actually relatively faithfully more faithfully than I remembered because I watched that fight scene and I thought oh this is ridiculously over the top and then I went back and read it in the comic and it it is more faithful to the comic than you might think those things happen in the comic but there is a fundamental difference between how violence comes across on a comics page and how it comes across in a film and in the film it is lingered over and made into something just much more and something bigger than it is on the page and I, I and in fairness, I I think Snyder does take it further than the graphic novel does. There are there were a number of scenes that when when I was doing my direct comparison from the issues to the comic, where I was I was writing, added in this piece of violence, and there is a lot mm. of violence in the comic book, and a lot of it, uh, you know, it all does mostly show up on screen. But there were so many occasions where I was like. Uh, Snyder's added this gory bit here or he's added this bloody bit there. I think he, he genuinely does add more violence to it. Oh, and he, he adds more yeah. violence to... I think particularly characters other than Rorschach, other characters become more violent than they were in the comic. Mm. And I think that, that the scene that is most uncomfortable is the Ozymandias assassination scene. So we see a, a, an assassin mm. coming in to shoot uh, Ozymandias. And in the comic, other people are shot in that scene. But there is in the movie a bullet goes through someone's leg and shatters it, that, and then that close-up of a bullet going through a woman's leg is one of the most gratuitous things. It's, and it's, and it's grotesque and unpleasant to watch, and then fingers shatter. Oh yeah, when, it, when she gets her fingers shot off, it's just like, what's the what's the point of that? What purpose did that serve? Yeah, well, I think I think when that happens, it's generally Zack Snyder thinks it looks cool. And similarly, I mean, Rorschach, um, the you know Rorschach's not his first case, but you know the the moment where he became Rorschach. Um, it just adds a completely different complexion to that scene when you show Rorschach in silhouette repeatedly cleaving a guy's head in. But I mean, and, and sorry, going back to that assassination scene, I think that scene actually does end with one of the great 
shots of the movie is Ozymandias taking out the assassin with the stanchion. I think that looks really cool. And that was, I think when you actually go back to the trailer, the original trailer with the Smashing Pumpkins music, and there is, there's quite a lot of frames that he's directly adapted from the novel mm. and kind of superhero flourishes and poses and uh, some of his like patented slow motion stuff that does look really great on film. It looks cool. How do you how do you feel the movie did in filling these roles and in turn in turn doing justice to the characters? Because so my, my argument was earlier on that the movie generally Snyder has to either commit to servicing the plot as completely as he can or servicing the characters. Um, and I think a lot of the, I think he generally chooses the plot. So, but what, what did you think of of the characters and the casting of them? I, I think they divide quite neatly down the middle because of the six of them. I think the comedian and Rorschach are brilliant. Mm-hmm. Doctor Manhattan and Night Owl are okay, fine, don't really stand out. And um, Laurie and Adrian are dreadful. <laughs> I think, to be fair, uh, I think Laurie was all right. I don't think she's a bad actress. I just don't think she works, and I think she's badly written as well. But well, well, the thing is, like Laurie was all, always like one of the worst characters in the comic as well. Like a sort yeah. of you know an Alan Moore blind. I agree with that. And the the only thing I would add is I think that Patrick Wilson as Dan Dryberg Night Owl is uh, for me the best in the movie. I think he. I think he captures that character incredibly well. Whether he's the best written character, I'm not sure, but I, I think he's superb. I think, to be fair, like the the one I thought was bad was Billy Crudup. Yeah, yeah, I'm just because like that that character is sort of the the heart of the book. Like you're you're supposed to believe so much about how just the existence of Doctor Manhattan affects the rest of the world's attitude towards everything, and he's just tedious for, for to me watch. he's like and this seems strange to talk about the dr manhattan character but he's just a little bit almost too cold for me there is there is when he does get his scenes where you get the flashes of emotion there's not enough there for me and i know that's actually billy crudup's animated face we're seeing on dr manhattan having said that, i think the character visually is realized very well yeah i don't i just don't feel any present to him like you know you should be in awe of this god and you're not you're just like oh he's droning on and on and it's really boring but that, i mean and that comes from being super faithful to his dialogue from the from the graphic novel well and you know the instruction to play him as emotionlessly as mm. possible like the the whole point of dr manhattan is that he's not as emotionless as he pretends to be do you do you agree with me that um the costumes almost entirely are pretty great. Uh, again, I think probably the weaker characters are um, Silk Spectre and um, Ozymandias, but I thought, I thought otherwise they look spot on. What I like with Ozymandias is that it's a deliberate parody of the Batman and Robin costumes. There's no reason for it to be, and it makes no thematic sense, but I quite like that they did that anyway. So I don't mind his costume. Uh, Laurie's isn't great. It's but... just a little bit. It's a little bit porny, isn't it? It is, but if they'd made it look like the comic, it would have looked terrible as well. So, yeah. you know, rocking a hard well, place, I, really. I sent you round a still photo, a promotional photo of um, Marlon Ackerman <laughs> in her Salt Spectre costume. And, man, I feel sorry that she had to wear that on set for so long. It looks um, particularly uncomfortable in some very delicate areas. Well, having said that, on the, from the other end of the spectrum, uh, Rorschach looks perfect. They get the mask pretty spot on, I think. Yeah, and and similarly the comedian. Um, yeah, and I, and I would kind of want to talk about the comedian just because I really think that in terms of the cast, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is the best thing about the film. In terms of walking off the page, like Jackie Earl Haley runs him close, but he is the one who completely embodies the character as they are in the comic. The only problem is he's not in the film enough. The thing about Jeffrey Dean Morgan is almost that he's too charismatic. 
That's the only thing. He like, makes him a bit too likable when he really should be. He's supposed to be a villain who you come to sort of sympathise, well, not even sympathise with. Like, you shouldn't be thinking he's a good guy in a bad situation. Like, when he's crying, you're not supposed to be empathising with him. No, but I, again, I think that's that's difficult. That's a very fine line that the graphic novel treads. I mean, one of the last pages of the comic is um, Sally Jupiter kissing her photo of the comedian. And, you know, that's the guy that tried to rape her. True. I read somewhere that Alan Moore, he was working with some characters from, like, a defunct comics book publisher. Is that true? Yeah, so so DC had bought the rights to the characters from a publisher called Charlton yes, Comics. Yes, yeah, that's what I read. Um, so these included characters, um, the Blue Beetle, a, um, a character called the Peacemaker, Judo Master. There's a whole bunch. Uh, the Question is the most famous and one. Were they, were they actually the ones that he was going to move forward with, or were there actual DC heroes that were stand-ins in his original plans? No, so, so his original plans were to use the Charlton characters. The yeah. idea was that they were going to bring the Charlton characters into the DC universe, and Watchmen was going to be the comic. And it was its original title was "Who Killed the Peacemaker," so the Peacemaker was the yes, comedian. Yeah, yeah. Um, very early on in development, it became apparent that this was going to be something else entirely. So he changed all the characters, filed the serial numbers off, and because of that, he was able to work other elements in. So Silk Spectre has got a heavy dose of Black Canary with the whole mother-daughter passing on the legacy. There's a little bit more Batman in Night Owl and that kind of thing. Like Night Owl is Blue well, Beetle. Uh, for me, you know. for me, oh, sorry, Night Owl and Rorschach crammed together seem like Batman. Oh, also, also. Rorschach is Travis Bickle, right? He is. <laughs> well, Travis Bickle. I mean, again, with, without spending too long talking about it, um, uh, Rorschach is the one who is the closest to his original counterpart. Rorschach is basically the question. Right. Um, the, the question was uh, a, a, an objectivist superhero. Is this the best way I can put it? And then Dr. Manhattan is pretty much Superman, right? Dr. Manhattan's Captain Atom. Okay, but I mean, he seems very Superman. But there's elements yeah. of Superman in there, and yeah, the point is, by by making them their own thing, he was able to fold in other influences, and it's you know, the whole thing is a lot better than it would have been if it was the Charlton characters. Uh, very quickly, the soundtrack again. A lot of this comes from the graphic novel. Uh, how did you think it worked on the screen? I mean, again, it's just it's all very on the nose. It's like every track that gets played is the single most obvious track that could get played at that point but at the same time i don't necessarily mind that because some of, some well, partly because a lot of it comes from the comic it's like the scene where they are going to karnak you have to have all along the watchtower i wish they hadn't have had because... Hendrix's version what's the better version oh, well first of all no it's not <laughs> um, and second of all um i don't think that really strikes the right tone at that point i think they should have gone with dylan and having said that i, I mean this is maybe me being a bob dylan fanboy but my chemical romance covering desolation row oh my testicles crawl um, back inside my body oh is that what it that. was i was just like what the hell is this at the end I, I i think the reason i like them using the hendrix version is because um I, I think the Hendrix version works well for when someone is travelling somewhere, and that's basically because of Withnail and I. Um, <laughs> I like I like the ninety nine red balloons. I think that that works. I like the times they are changing. Times they are changing is fantastic. Well, but it's really, very really on the nose, choice. but it's you know it's in that part of the comic, and uh, and it and it makes sense completely for that title sequence. Again, that was one of the things I enjoyed most about the film was listening to a Bob Dylan song. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I think probably the natural place to uh, take this conversation of the movie to a to an end is by discussing the ending of the movie 
and the change that the movie makes. So in the graphic novel, Ozymandias, you know, this is bedded all the way through. And to be fair, Snyder does commit to bedding the Dr. Manhattan energy boost thing from quite early on. But that's that's what's changed. We have a squid destroying New York and killing millions of people in the graphic novel and Dr. Manhattan being responsible for it in the movie. Do you Do you think it needed to be changed? And do you like the change? I think there are kind of two parts to it, really. So the first part is, in terms of how it's done and how it looks, um, I can fully understand not going with the giant squid, especially when you haven't been able to set up all of the the sort of the psychic resonance and the fact that they had all the writers and artists creating horrific imagery Mm. to go with it and stuff like that. All of that subplot's gone. So in terms of that, I think is fine. And I also think it works well to to have it be something that happens worldwide rather than just in New York. Yeah. My problem with it is the connection to Dr. Manhattan because it's a logic problem that completely undoes the whole point of the ending because it doesn't matter that part of the attack happened in New York. At the end of the day, Dr. Manhattan is seen by the world as an American. Yeah. And even down to the fact that they include the line, you know, the Superman exists and he's American. The rest of the world would think of Dr. Manhattan as American. And even though he also destroyed New York, that would be seen as America attacking the world. Yeah. And so it would not bring about the fear of an outside culture attacking Earth that results in the Earth banding together. It it just undoes the entire... Adrian's plot is not the same plot, and it just doesn't work. On first watch, I thought, oh, that worked. That I, 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 I'm going to defend that ending. I think it makes more sense than the squid in a movie context. But the second thing that doesn't make sense, and it's one of the things that I think a lot of people love when they you know, read the last pages of Watchmen, is that ambivalent ending where the where Rorschach's journal is left in the New Frontiersman office. And the fact that Rorschach's commitment to justice, no matter the price, you know, may or may not be about to come true. But there is a possibility mm. that if Rorschach's journal is published, that the world finds out the truth and mm. the truth ends and we get mutually assured destruction anyway. Now, yeah. if the world finds out that Ozymandias is responsible for the attacks rather than Dr. Manhattan. That's just another kind of American <laughs> yeah, icon doing the, the same thing. Hasn't it? And let's let's talk about the, the thing that struck me. As I say, originally I kind of defended that ending, and I think once you delve into it like we have, it doesn't quite stand up to the logic of the story being told. But the thing that was really a problem for me was what is what is so affecting about that happening and about the uh, Ozymandias saying, you know, it happened 35 minutes ago and then the next issue starts. There are like five, six full pages of bloody devastation in New York City of characters that you've seen populate this story for 11 issues dead and mangled uh, on a bloody New York street. And for a film that had committed so much to blood and violence and to being, you know, kind of R-rated, 18-rated content, to just have nothingness on the streets seemed like a, such a strange decision to me. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> it just yeah, it doesn't it have just, the, the that, horrific That whole effect. sequence, I yeah. thought, just, you know, it was just, it could have been in from any movie. It was, there was nothing that... I mean, I, I know we were complaining earlier about Zack Snyder kind of having long lingering shots of, of gore and violence and death, but the point is is that he spreads them liberally, liberally throughout the film at times when they're not really appropriate, and then the one <laughs> yeah. point where it would have actually had a devastating emotional impact... He doesn't do it. Well, it wouldn't have had that impact because the whole rest of the film was full of it. Well, no, but the point is, if you realise, well, yeah. But the point is, you take them out of the rest of the film and you have them at the end. You have it at the end, and it's shocking, and it 
Yeah. They they cheat by showing you New York being blown up as opposed to all the other places which have, you know, happened previously. Yeah. In terms of cinematic grammar, it's so lazy just to be like, look, it's New York. You care about New York, don't you? Unless you're not American. Well, I, I think that basically draws things to a close. I think I, th- I think probably if we if we stuck ourselves in order, James likes this violently the least. Um, and then may, I think may, I think maybe I'm a little bit above you, Seb. Yeah, I, th- I think you like it more than me. I think before rewatching it for this episode, I would have said I liked it more than I did. This this rewatch actually took away some of my, some of my respect for the film. <laughs> I think it, but I've got to say, I completely understand why some people really like it. Um, and I think if you've read Watchmen and you've kind of got that that you know if you've read it once and loved it and then gone and seen the film, you've gone, yeah, that's fairly faithful. But I think if you have read the graphic novel tens and twenty times you know that you're realizing that the film just hasn't come close to you know through the very nature that it is a film it hasn't come close to doing justice so for a film that is kind of committing that much to the structure and everything like that i can understand why for some people it works and for some people who maybe Mm. know it a lot more a lot deeper feel like it doesn't do it justice Okay, guys, so given that we're talking about Watchmen that is based on one graphic novel called Watchmen, um, what are your comic book recommendations this week? (laughs) Have you ever heard of Miracle Man? Uh, I've heard of it, yeah. So in the 80s, one of the things Alan Moore worked on that was part of his kind of prolifically transformative period of work uh, was this reimagining of a 50s superhero called Marvel Man as a character called Miracle Man. Um, I won't bore you with the reasoning behind that. (laughs) We we haven't got another two hours. Yeah, we haven't got several podcasts to cover that. But basically, the idea of taking superheroes and putting them in a more textured adult context. Miracle Man is one of the first pieces of work to have done that. And it's recently been republished by Marvel. I would say read the first six, maybe. Okay. So like the first volume. Like whatever the first volume is. Okay. Seb, talk about yours. Uh, So I'm going to recommend to you Animal Man. Uh, specifically Volume 1 of Animal Man by uh, Grant Morrison and Chaz Trog and a couple of other artists. So this kind of ties into what I was saying earlier about the effect that Watchmen had on the industry. And one of the practical effects was that DC Comics went to try and find more Alan Moores. Right. By, by which I mean they went to find British writers who they could hire <laughs> to write kind of adult and subversive takes <laughs> on obscure old characters. This was how we got Sandman. That was Neil Gaiman being hired to write a hokey old 70s character that he then turned into something completely different. And one of the other examples um, that they had was Grant Morrison, who got hired, who was a writer who'd kind of been around since the early 80s. Um, so Grant Morrison got hired to do what was initially going to be a four-issue miniseries take on an incredibly obscure old DC character called Animal Man, who was from the 1960s, who had only ever appeared in about 20-odd issues of comics between the 60s and the 1980s. Um, what Morrison did was just a brilliant... Um, and you know, for a young writer, a kind of brilliant and very mature take on a kind of everyman, bit of a loser superhero... Um, bringing more in the way of kind of real world issues and stuff into it so the first four issues uh, the first volume collects the first nine issues first four issues are are quite sort of 
um, are, are a kind of self-contained story and that's very heavy on kind of animal rights stuff. But when he got the go-ahead to turn it into an ongoing series, he decided to make it a more sort of metatextual take on the very nature of comic books and superheroes. Animal Man is one of the first examples of taking the principles of what Watchmen did for superhero comics and applying them to actual superhero characters who are actually in the DC universe. Superman shows up in one of the earliest issues of Animal Man and there are various other DC characters who show up as well. He And he joins the Justice League in, in part of it. He is part of the DC universe but you have this collision of worlds between the Alan Moore Watchmen approach and the existing okay. DC superheroes. There's also one of the issues contained in the first volume has an incredibly obvious piece of Watchmen pastiche in terms of the style and the storytelling and what it's about. The whole series, there's three volumes in all because he did 26 issues, but the first volume is a really good entry point. You'll get the first four issues and then you'll get issue five, which is one of the most phenomenal single issue comics you will ever read in your life. (laughs) I could talk about Animal Man for hours, but read the first volume and tell me what you think of it. And as I say, if you like Watchmen, you should like Animal Man. Okay, um, great recommendations, guys. And if you would like to find out where to read those comics, we will put up the links for where to buy them on panelbeats.co.uk. Let's move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. So uh, imagine an alternate universe where Richard Nixon has been president for four terms. Um, No, uh, imagine, imagine an alternate universe where the first Watchmen was such a phenomenal hit in cinemas that Warner Brothers went, we can't not do Watchmen 2. So I want to know, what is your pitch for the plot of Watchmen 2? Um, So you're going to have 30 seconds each, and Seb, do you want to go first this week? My idea for another Watchmen film is titled Blood from the Shoulder of Pallas, and as I'm sure you all know, that is the title of the one really crucial bit of Watchmen that didn't make it into the first film, which is Dan Dryberg's essay about owls from the end of issue seven, which everyone I'm sure is intimately familiar with. So uh, in my film, it's just two hours of Dan Dryberg standing at a podium reading an extended lecture version of that essay. Uh, then at the end of the film, he leaves the lecture hall and walks down the street and we follow him on a bus and whatever, however he takes his journey. And then he goes and knocks on a front door and Hollis Mason answers the door. And it turns out that he's on his way to his meeting with Hollis Mason from the very beginning yeah. of the first film. And it's actually a prequel. <laughs> um, and now your pitch, James. Can we have 30 seconds of silence here? <laughs> it is anathema to me to think of any doing anything with those characters that isn't by Alan Moore. But they have, right? Well, yeah, the thing is, we joke about the rights reasons. Like, you know, Alan Moore's got a problem with films and stuff. But genuinely, they fucked him over. And for them to do that in an industry that has spent so much time trying to repair or the other time they fucked over every creator that came up with you know, any a superhero character in the 40s or 60s or whatever. You know, for DC to go and do Before Watchmen was just so many steps backwards. And, you know, it genuinely made me embarrassed to read superhero comics just because the companies treat the talent with such contempt. Okay, so we got Seb's very jovial answer and uh, James's refusing to answer almost but an impassioned plea for uh, integrity in comic books. I don't... I mean... As much as my heart says to me, always lean towards the novelty answer. I don't feel that the amount of passion that was in James's uh, James's argument towards the end there. I think I'm going to have to give it to James, <laughs> even though he swerved the question. Even, yeah, kind of. Even though he did. I mean, could you? He sounded really angry. Do you want to tell him that he hasn't won? I don't want to tell him. <laughs> the winner this week is James. 
Hooray! It doesn't feel like a victory. <laughs> well, that that is it for this week. If you're enjoying our show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating, uh, a rating or review on iTunes. That would be uh, very much appreciated. Um, in the past month, three people have done that. So thanks to Amon Warman, Spurs, and Twenty Three Martin. If you do leave us ratings in future, and you actually want your name read out, just tweet at us because I kind of feel bad for Spurs that he left us a rating and that's that's the only name we can read but really massive thanks to you guys you can find us on Facebook you can find us on Twitter at CU underscore podcast and you can send us emails if you'd like to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com you can find episodes of this podcast on cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com on panelbeats.co.uk or because this is a film divider podcast on filmdivider.com um, and in the off weeks, uh, because I'm aware that some people probably don't listen to them, I record mini-sodes where I kind of react to the comic book recommendations that Seb and James have given me. So if you want to hear me talking <laughs> about Animal Man and Marvel Man? Miracle Man? I'm already Miracle confused Man. which one it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Welcome to... <laughs> you, can, uh, you can tune into that mini-sode next week. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Live as one of them, to discover where your strength and your power are needed, but always hold in your heart the pride of your special heritage. They can be great people. They wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason above all, their capacity for good, I have sent them you, my only son. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Superman. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.